Welcome to the show, and thanks for listening. A primary purpose of this podcast is to interview regular people so that they can share their stories and experiences, the kind of people you could find all around you, much like how I found today's guest, Bill Kemp. Last year, I was telling my neighbor about this crazy idea I had, and he told me, you have to talk to Bill. I met him at one of our HOA meetings. He's a Vietnam vet and has incredible stories. My neighbor gave me Bill's number, and we linked up a couple weeks later. And boy, was he right. I'll be completely honest with you, though. I was not so confident going to our first meeting. I've had varying interactions with older veterans. On one hand, before I left for Iraq, an old family friend and Vietnam veteran who never spoke of his experience gave me advice, encouragement, and a keepsake that got him through his tour. Like so many others, I traveled through Bangor, Maine, en route to Iraq, and was greeted by Korean and Vietnam War veterans who wished to give the knowing handshake only a veteran could give for those leaving for war and the warmth they never got to those returning. On the other hand, I've also been met with indifference and standoffishness by some. I mean, every person also owns how they treat people, so I'm not trying to make any generalizations. But the common thread is that I never know how the interactions are going to go. But I had no reason to worry. My conversation with Bill was incredible, and we found far more that we had in common than different. The experiences he's going to share encapsulate an era I've only heard about in stories from my dad and have seen depicted in movies, which doesn't suffice. He served in a time when there were wars on many fronts, race, faith in government, and one in a country that many people probably couldn't even locate on a map today. Sound familiar? It should. He served two tours, each completely different and full of amazing stories. I think you'll enjoy listening as much as I enjoy doing this interview possibly even more. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. This episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. Anyone who's had to haggle for bootleg copies of Smallville in a foreign bazaar to fill the void of deployment boredom understands futility and disappointment. Emblem Athletic offers a simple price for unlimited styles and designs, so your unit can get what it needs without worrying about crazy price structure or receiving a lackluster product. You can take your chances at a bazaar, but get the gear you're guaranteed to love at Emblem Athletic. All right, well, I just want to welcome Bill Kemp to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Let's go ahead and get started. Okay, well, I was a um, draftee and was drafted into the Army, went through basic training at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, while I was there, I was called in, into the uh, first sergeant's office and said I had passed the writtens to go to OCS, which I had knew nothing about. Yeah, and if I can give a quick explanation of OCS, OCS is one of three commissioning sources, the two others being ROTC and West Point. And so OCS is a way for folks that are enlisted to get a commission. So I declined it, decided that I'd just see where I was going to go in the military here. So I ended up going to Fort Ord, California for advanced infantry training. What was your motivation behind declining it? My motivation was to not be in that long. Mm-hmm. Two years and now you're out. Right. So if I'd have been sent to Germany in the motor pool or something like that, I probably would not have applied for OCS. If I can just ask, ask you real quick, I don't think people really understand... It's kind of a foreign concept of getting a letter or getting notification that, hey, you've been drafted and 
you were be you're going to enter the U.S. Army. What was it like to get drafted? What was that process like? Well, we all kind of knew that it was going to happen, so it wasn't like you just got a letter one day and you said, "Oh, oh my goodness, I, mm-hmm. what's going to happen to me?" We knew it was coming. Uh, we just didn't want to have to go to Vietnam because right. of, because of you know, there was, even then there, there was still a lot of protesting with that war over there. What year was it when you got drafted? I got drafted in 1965. Okay. So I got drafted, and um, my motivation was that I did not want to go get killed in Vietnam someplace far off I knew nothing about. So that was my motivation for that. Right. So um, when I found out I was going to be in the infantry, I then realized I was going to be a grunt, and my odds of survival probably weren't all that good. So when I went to advanced infantry training, I went back to the first sergeant there and asked if that deal was still available. And they looked my records up and said it sure was. So some of my motivation was that maybe by the time I got through OCS and everything else that I was going to do, this would be over. And I wouldn't have to go at all because nobody wanted to go. I didn't know a single person that wanted to do this. Right. So I finished AIT. I was a holdover for a few months. I was an MP, just a prisoner guard. We'd take four or five prisoners out and they pull weeds at the general's residence, that kind of thing. So then finally my class date came along. So this is the time between when you said you wanted to go to OCS and when you actually went? Yeah, graduated from AIT, right. then I went to OCS about three or four months later. Okay. And so but I had to do something in the interim. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so they put me with the MPs there. And we carried a shotgun with double lot buck in it, and if somebody ran, we were supposed to shoot him, which happened to me. One of the guys asked me one day, if I ran, would you shoot me? And I said, well, I wouldn't have any choice. I was 19 years old. Right. This guy's name was Patavoni. So Patavoni took off on me one day, and I put the weapon on his back and pulled the trigger, and I had the safety on. So I pulled, pushed the safety off and didn't really want to kill anybody, so I pulled that weapon way left and fired it. One buck hit him in the leg. It was double-lot buck, so I think in yeah. those things there's probably eight or ten of those things that are the yeah, size of a thirty-eight. Right, right. Anyway, one of them hit him and looked like he'd been swatted down with a big fly swatter. And then uh, later on, he thanked me for not killing him. <laughs> so I couldn't believe that. So anyway, he went to three years at Leavenworth. I got to take him to Leavenworth since I guess I was the one that shot him. And I didn't really like doing that. That wasn't really a lot of fun. But it's, I mean, kind of a random question. <clears throat> I know he said he thanked you. What was your relationship with him like when you were in transit and everything? Well, he was an awfully, he was one of those people that when he was in a prison cell, he'd urinate in a boot and throw it on the officers when they came by. He was really bad. Yeah. Uh, but after that, when I'd come, go by his cell, he, th- he thanked me profusely for not killing him. He said, this is what he wanted. He wanted to get shot and go to Leavenworth and not go to Vietnam. It seemed kind of a, a weird way to get out of possibly getting shot somewhere else. He, yeah. he got shot in the United States. So Anyway, we took him on a train to Fort Leavenworth, and I was his guard, myself, and two NCOs. <laughs> but he ended up serving three years in Leavenworth, so. wow. and a dishonorable discharge. So. Wow. Who knows what happened to him, but... So at any rate, uh, when I finally got to Fort Benning, Georgia, started OCS, we did our nine, ten months of OCS. I finished somewhere around the top third of my class. Mm -hmm. Pretty much kept my mouth shut and tried to just stay out of everybody's way. But uh, they put us through OCS, and of course Vietnam was still going on, so I applied for a jump school. It was another three weeks. Airborne. Airborne. And and then I went to uh, ranger training, Mm -hmm. finished ranger training, and... My brother was in Vietnam at the time. He was younger than me. He was in the 25th Infantry Division also. And my father asked me if I would request to not go to Vietnam until he came back. And there was a law about that from, I think, the Fighting Sullivans in World War II. There right. was some law that was passed where you didn't have to have two brothers in the same combat area. Right. That's a famous letter, right? Right. 
So I requested that, got it. So they needed to send me somewhere. Mm -hmm. So they sent me back to Fort Ord, California, to the exact same unit. I went through advanced infantry training to the same company. When I got there, I... It's a different look when you walk back in. Totally different. Especially if you had your tab at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. So that was a little bit... (laughs) They couldn't believe it. So You're a fresh lieutenant, but at least you have a a ranger tab on you. (laughs) Exactly. So I get back there, and my platoon sergeant from when I was in advanced infantry training was Sergeant Montoya. Mm -hmm. He was still there. So I asked for that platoon, and I got him to uh, report to me. And he walked in with his Smokey the Bear hat under his arm, and he reported to me. And I asked him, I said, do you remember me, Sergeant? And he goes, no, sir, I don't believe I do. And I said, well, I was in your advanced infantry training class. You a little Puerto Rican guy. And he goes, oh, I didn't know. He says, I just can't believe this finally has happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was kind of interesting. So like I, I sort of never, he was, a, he was a good platoon sergeant. He was not one, you know, you always hear these stories about people getting beaten and everything else. They never did anything like that that I ever saw. I'm sure it right. might have happened somewhere, but right. the, uh, I never saw it. Full Metal Jacket's the famous uh, exactly. Marine basic training, which is different than this. But I never saw that in the Army, and I was around basic training a bit. So. Right. At any rate, uh, so I got through all that. And then, of course, my brother came back. And um, when he came back, I met him at the airport in uniform. He was in uniform. So when he showed up, I said, aren't you going to salute the officer? <laughs> he made some rude comment to me about that. <laughs> he said, I've always wanted to do that. Sure, it's very colorful language, too. <laughs> it was. Yeah. That, and, of course, he didn't salute me. So. <laughs> yeah, when I got uh, commissioned, my brother was there. and you know, He's already an officer. When, when your brother is also in, it's kind of a funny dynamic. It, it really was. And of course, he was enlisted, but he, well, he was getting out then. He came back, then he went to Colorado, where uh, the Air Force Academy is. Oh, yeah, Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs. Yeah. He was based out there. Okay. And he was there for like four or five months. He made E5 and then came back. What, uh, <clears throat> it's also kind of funny. Similarly, so your brother had a, a year of combat experience. He did. Yeah, so he had already been there, and he, you know, my, my brother went to Iraq before I went to Iraq. So what was that dynamic like with you and him well, after he... of course, he sat down and talked to me about... What I asked him about what to expect over mm-hmm. there. For six months, he was a 106 gunner, a recoilless rifle yeah. on a Jeep. Mm-hmm. And um, he was um, part of an infantry unit but that had those 106s. I don't remember exactly the nomenclature of what that unit was, but right. at any rate... After those things six, were nasty, by the way. Yeah, they were. And they had, had flesh, not flesh yet, but the beehive rounds and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. They, they are, fired, also, direct fire on troops. They can also mess with your head a little bit yeah. if you uh, fire too many rounds. But um, he uh, was that for six months, and then they got rid of the 106s. Mm-hmm. He became just straight up in straight leg infantry. Yeah. And I think he was a squad leader. Anyway, he, he gave me a lot of information on what was going on over there. And so... I left on leave and went, then went from there to Fort Gulick in the Canal Zone. And they called it uh, a Jungle Warfare Training School. Yeah, it's in Panama, right? It was yeah. in Panama. Yeah. So I went to that. And when I got there, there was three Navy SEALs there, officers, that were mm-hmm. going through that same course. And so I, there was four officers. I was one of them. So I hooked up with them. And I learned a lot more going through training with them than I actually did with them training itself. We, we did an escape and evasion. We didn't get caught because I was with them. And they right. knew how to evade. Right. And it's all I could do to keep up with them. At any rate, when we did get through the E&E, which was like a three-day, four-day thing, yeah. uh, we got through that, and then they made us go back and go through the uh, camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no matter what, you get, get caught. <laughs> so you're not supposed to not get caught. Right. So we did that, and then I went from there straight to Vietnam. Uh, I was... Um, 
assigned to the 25th Infantry Division, but it was not an airborne or ranger unit at all. And I didn't figure I'd get to go to a ranger unit. I just I thought I might, but I didn't. Is it, was that what you wanted to go to? Well, I didn't know how it would have worked. Kind of just had a tab, and that was it. You right. Know, kind of went through the school and never really got into a. I never did get into a ranger unit. Yeah, and they were they were split up in. I think back there was then, 75th companies. Ranger Battalion or something like that, and whatever it was. Yeah, but they had a. Uh, it wasn't. They they hadn't quite consolidated that unit just yet they had uh um a lot of the ranger units in vietnam were split out to companies and those companies yes. were assigned out to individual like the 173rd uh, right. or or 25th you were with the 173rd i was with 173rd yeah. um i supported them my second tour as a helicopter mm-hmm. pilot oh wow so got to fly them around a lot of nasty places but uh, anyway, I so, got to Vietnam and got assigned to the 1st of the 27th Infantry Alpha Company, and I was a platoon leader. Mm. My company commander was Peter B. Gleaser, who I, I recently talked to, you know, I was telling you about. Yeah. At any rate, um, I became a platoon leader right away. We did a little three-day in-doc course when we got there. What all was in that? It was um, just the, the history of the Vietnamese people and mm. why we were there and wh- where we were. We didn't really know, and they showed us on the maps where we were and how close we were to Saigon, and, and you know that something we had heard of. Yeah, that's so, a, and that's a, a geography not not a lot of people understand. That, it, just, it was a little different, so yeah, they just how just long wanted, wanted like, to let Vietnam us know was. where we were. Yeah, so we did all that, and so then I became a platoon leader. We started combat assaults on Hueys. They'd pick us up every day, and we'd be out in a field somewhere. We would be in either in a battalion logger. Well, we might be in a company logger, just our company alone. What's a logger? Uh, it was just a per- perimeter. We'd set the company up out in the field somewhere, mm-hmm. put a perimeter up, we dug dig bunkers in, and we would be there by ourselves. Right, just sitting out there. Sitting out there at night. Perimeter fighting positions. You've got a little CP. That's right. Mm-hmm. Had a little CP in the middle. We would Command post, s- by the way, sorry. Yeah, command <laughs> post, yeah. We'd set up all of our uh, fields of fire. And uh, then we'd send ambush patrols out at night. So if you were a platoon leader, you you went out every third night because we had three infantry platoons, and then we had one weapons platoon, right. which was mortars and machine guns. So we went out. We would go out every third night on an ambush, and it was all night long. And usually, we hardly ever had more than twenty to twenty-five people, even though we were supposed to have forty-four. Right. Hardly ever had that. In fact, I never had that. And the company was supposed to have 166 people. We hardly ever had over 100, 110. Always re- there was replacements, wounded, sick, just whatever. It never let us get to full strength. So um, some of that might have been due to the way that folks kind of came in and came out of Vietnam. Right, right? because there was we, never... we didn't go over as a unit. Right. We went over as replacements. Yeah. Some people did go over as a unit, and they went over full strength. Mm-hmm. But then the replacements started coming as they lost folks, and so like first cav, fourth infantry. Yeah. So if you you know if you watch, we were soldiers, you know, once and young, or, right. or, or read the book. They went all went over together. Yeah, they went as full strength, mm-hmm. but some units were there long term, like twenty fifth. Uh, I think the one seventy third was there for for a long term, uh, and you had folks come in and come out. That's um, right. And so those units typically, like you said, never reached full manning for many reasons, but. So my first, I would say about six months in country, five months, as I was a platoon leader. Mm-hmm. I'd been in country probably, I want to say two months, hard to remember exactly, but somewhere in that vicinity. And I had uh, about 23 people in the field with me. So just a quick question. What was the lay of the land like? Was it mountainous terrain? Because 
This was Vietnam he- heavy jungle, rolling, rolling plains. Right. It wasn't mountains or anything like yeah. that. It was just thick underbrush. Sometimes it would get up into the double, triple canopy above mm-hmm. us. Sometimes it wasn't. It just open fields, some rice paddies. This happened to be maybe double canopy, a lot of trees and stuff around us, and right. uh, under, underbrush. We'd been on patrol, and we started taking fire. And we took fire from us bunkers that were up ahead of us. Right. And these bunkers were hidden up in this. We walked right up on them, didn't right. even know they were there. Right. I, I'm absolutely surprised we didn't take casualties right off the bat. Yeah. But they started shooting at us, and just from the way we uh, had approached it, they didn't really have a good fields of fire on yeah. us. Yeah. That's fortunate. So we're all on the ground, and I get a call from my company commander to low crawl back to where he was with my RTO. So I go back to where the company commander is. All he was was just back up probably 20 yards or so, mm-hmm. not far, 30 yards. And he said, everybody get down. I have Vietnamese Air Forces coming in to drop napalm on these bunkers. So we all got down, and shortly these VNAF jets came in, two of them and dropped the napalm canisters. Well, unfortunately, they dropped the napalm closer to my troops than they did the bunkers, and every one of my troops got burned. Everyone I had in the field right there, all 23 or 22 of them. Right. And uh, they were no, nobody was killed, and I don't think anyone was really disfigured forever, but they all got sent home. Right. I lost my entire platoon. Wow. That had to be a major effort once all those guys got wounded. Oh, like, getting them dusted off. Um, right. We had... Uh, and how did the napalm deal with the bunkers? It, did that take care of it? Or? No, we were still under fire. Right. So uh, we pulled those people back. And most of them were walking wounded. There was a couple that weren't. Uh, that we had to drag at back, actually, because mm-hmm. we were all down. So we got, we got them all back further to the rear. And then we got a landing zone set up for the uh, the medevacs. Right. So they called them dust-offs. And so the dust-offs came in, and we had three dust-offs come in and pick everybody up. Wow. And uh, they just loaded them up in there. So I never saw any of those people again, which is really strange. That is. Well, they went straight to the field hospitals. Yeah. And then and from there to burn units, and then they were gone. Yeah, and then maybe to probably Japan, Japan or, yeah. or Hawaii or somewhere like that. So how did y'all deal with the bunkers after all those guys got burned? Well, we stayed right where we were and mm-hmm. the, the dust-offs, and then uh, we had the company there. So yeah. there were two other platoons. Yeah. So he maneuvered the platoons, and then they came in and we used hand grenades on the bunkers and yeah. light anti-tank weapons laws. And we we took no casualties on that. Destroyed all the bunkers. There were yeah. three or four people in those bunkers. Yeah, no casualties from enemy fire, but no, we didn't only friendly because we knew where the we knew where the apertures were and where they were firing from. You could see the tracers coming out. Right. But I didn't really have a lot to do with that. I was trying to get my folks dusted off. Yeah. So the that company commander took care of that. So. Yeah. So they then tasked the battalion to give up some of their troops to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, not to say that anyone was better or worse than anyone else. If somebody asked me for some of my troops, I wouldn't give them my two best ones or three. No, absolutely. They'd get them my two or three worst. Yeah. Just somebody I wanted to get rid of. Well, I ended up with an entire black platoon. Right. I was the only white guy in it. Right. And um, it just happened to be the and, only officer in it, too. I was the only officer, yeah. and it was ended up being kind of scary because these folks were draftees, just mm-hmm. like I was. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be there, and they did not like officers. They right. didn't like anybody. I hate to ask you to speculate. Why do you think that they felt that way? Um, authority, not wanting to be there. Officers really didn't speak to the troops a whole lot at that time. Right. Usually they had an NCO. I didn't even have an NCO at the time because mine got dusted off. In right. the end, my, I had an E6 who was, so or an like E7 it. who was my platoon sergeant. Right. 
So I ended up getting another E7 later on, but I ended up with just myself and these troops. Just to explain something for anybody who would listen, when you have a platoon, you have a platoon leader who's the officer, right. uh, and then you have an enlisted leader who's a non-commissioned officer, and that usually is a, a seasoned NCO who is ideally is like a, a sergeant first class who's usually been in the, in the Army for, I don't know. 15 years, 15 10 years. years yeah, yeah, 10, 15 years. It really depends. Then you, have, of course, have squad leaders. Mm-hmm. And I actually ended up with a couple of corporals uh, in these these fellows that I got, and uh, they I, they were my squad leaders, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, they were a big help. Right. But uh, I knew I was going to have a little trouble there, or at least I thought I was. Right. So I got everyone together and said, "Look, we're all here. We're all draftees. Right. None of us want to be here. And so if you take care of me, I'll take care of you. Right. Well, I'll do the very best I can to make sure we don't go in stumbling into something." That maybe the battalion wants us to do that's just stupid right because i had been there long enough to know what was stupid and where all the booby traps were and the way they wanted us to go about doing this right. so that's exactly what we did i ended up with a relatively good platoon right when they saw that i was willing to compromise sometimes which maybe the leaders might not have thought you should compromise that much but i kept us from going through areas that i'd been through before i knew i was going to have casualties from booby traps and that was the biggest problem we didn't get into that many firefights it was mostly booby traps that got right. us would you say that they bought in immediately or, or did it take some time nope. to kind of prove yourself it took them about two weeks for them to really buy in with me and, and uh was there like a pivotal point that where that happened or yeah we we got into a small firefight somewhere and nobody got hurt and uh, we had we got about five of the bad guys Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we maneuvered on them. So what right. we did, and they listened to what I said, and then from then on, I, they seemed to be just fine. Right. They would send us places that, that were, like we were in a place called the Hobo Woods and the Boloy Woods. Yeah. Just renowned for booby traps. And that, that was the whole tunnel system, the tunnels of Coochie, that's yeah. what that was. Okay. It's the whole pistol and a flashlight. That's right. So I wouldn't let them walk down trails, and they hated it. Mm-hmm. We cut our way through a lot of stuff because the trails were all booby traps. Yeah. And I knew that, and... Yeah, if, you know, some of them knew that, but you know the the old story, uh, you know, one hand grenade to get you all. And I made them walk far apart, and I was really tried to be a taskmaster on keeping them from getting hurt. Right. And Sometimes as it turned out, I didn't have one single casualty of my my black men that I had. Now I ended up with some casualties down the road with other folks. You know, some of the white guys that came along, but it just so happens that that none of we didn't have any casualties from the from the right. from those two couple months that i had those guys which and that's incredible a couple it was incredible ago. back then it was just incredible yeah and we took fire a lot of times and stuff like that and went into some hot lz's some of it was just plain luck right like i said i don't want to try and speculate at all obviously that was a time in america where there was a lot of racial tension there was with us too okay so what was that like well what ended up happening the blacks would all get together mm-hmm. and they'd literally smoke dope and whatever drugs they could get and right they were like... Um, was that while you were in the field or while you were like when you were No, kind this of... was when we were back at base camp. We okay. did our best to stay away from base camp. Right. Because it was just nothing but trouble. Right. It was always trouble. And then we had kind of the whites against the blacks. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but, but out in the field, we pretty much were all the same. Because, you know, we, we slept in poncho lines. We didn't even have tents. Right. We dug holes and slept in slits and slept in bunkers and sleeping in the mud and dirt together. and then we all we, everybody was on guard all night long everybody yeah. officers included yeah anyway that whole experience taught me a lot because i had never been around blacks in my life yeah and i learned a lot i grew up in an all-white place in carmel indiana right we had one black student in our entire system i knew nothing about how they had to come up and what they had to go through 
you know, get where they were. So I was, right. I got schooled on that. Yeah, <laughs> by quite the education. They did, and I mean, they would talk to me, so because I'd talk to them. Right. So it ended up for me being a good experience. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be a bad experience, but is, is it? You know, you never know till you get right involved in the middle of it. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where there's fear there because you don't know, right? Fear of the unknown, out of, and then we you heard stories ignorance. about people getting fragged where somebody throws a hand grenade in with one of the officers so they didn't like them, right? Or they, or the officer was just a bad officer, you know, right? Not necessarily, but could have been, right? So uh, you, I heard about it, never saw it, never, right. never saw it happen in my, any of my units. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things where for me, I never really had that much concern with it because it happened once in the invasion of Iraq uh, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it did happen. It did happen. It was during the invasion. They, I think it was actually kind of a tent, a planning tent. They threw a, mm-hmm. a grenade into, but. There's never really something I was that worried about. My time in, in the army was just different. Just different era. Different era. And then, you know, Same all volunteer people. army too. It's a different era. <laughs> yeah. Our our issues with soldier discipline were different. I kind of came through an era of when they recruit people, they're given a lot of waivers. Oh, well, they're given a lot of waivers for folks. So you you had those guys for about two months, and so did the natural rotation of troops kind of in and out. It did. Kind of Some of them were dis- short, yeah, uh, and short was of course when you had less than two months, and, right? And then of course we ended up getting more troops in to try to build our twenty three troops up to higher. I think I, there was a time I got up probably as, as high as thirty five. Wow. So some of them went to be door gunners. Right. Some of my black troops ended up being door gunners on helicopters because uh, they were losing a lot of helicopters back then, and they'd lose the crews. And, and of course, the infantry is who supplied the door gunners, typically they were machine gunners. I didn't know that. Yep. That's wow. where the door gunners came from. It was not an MOS that used... You, some people trained to be door gunners. Right. And then went over and were door gunners, but most of them came from the infantry. Right. And so that's a, you know that's the thing now is that that doesn't happen. It's they're yeah. part of the crew. That's part of the crew, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we had that then. It's just that we lost so many people. You, right. know, you go into an Ohio LZ and they shoot the helicopter up and they may get out, but the door gunner gets wounded or the, right. the crew chief. A lot of the door gunners then became crew chiefs. Right. Even though they had no training. Wow. They learned from the crew chiefs because we had such a shortage of people. Wow. So what's the common statistic, the uh, life expectancy for a lieutenant in the infantry? I, I had, you know, you heard different things, but it was like very short, like two weeks or something yeah, like yeah. that. And, and I can see because you did lead from the front. Mm-hmm. Now, I never walked point. I always had someone walk point, for, and I usually was number two or three yeah. in the back. But And I always had a compass in my hand trying to figure out where we were and counting paces because I'm the one that had to know how to get back to the base camp. Right. Or how to, what, where the LZ was that I needed to get picked up at. Right. So that stuff was, again, really got nerve-wracking sometimes trying to figure out where we were. Well, there's a lot of lessons learned that came out of Vietnam and things that I was appreciative of. As a, when I was going through training, things that kind of got implemented in ranger school and infantry training, and one of those was, you know, where do you actually put lieutenants if you're supposed to lead, and you're the yeah, first where person are they supposed to be. Yeah, if you're the, one of the first people up in the line, and then you come into contact, well, you're getting shot at, so you right. don't, you're not in a good position where you can kind of move people around mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, you're going to go ahead and lay down covering fire, and then you, I'm going to take you over here, and we're going to maneuver around and, and go attack. Of course, you know, when you were there, you you had more of an open area to a certain extent. I'm sure you had a lot of area right. to cover, too. But we had all cover. Yeah, you yeah. Know, unless you were walking on a rice paddy. Mm-hmm. And guess where you walked? You walked on a berm. And you were channelized wherever you were going. Right. And you, you, if, you, if you started taking fire, you were in the water. Right. That's just where you were. <laughs> but you did have a berm if you didn't get shot to sort of protect you. Yeah. Ours was, uh, yeah. I, well, so 
between the the two countries, it was very different too. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure yours you was a whole different type of, of terrain. So. Yeah, even though I never really got to, I did, but I, it wasn't all that common where I actually got to see who was shooting at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never did either. Yeah, couldn't see who was shooting at you. Yeah, you just take fire and you, you knew know, it was close. You didn't even know where it was coming from sometimes. Yeah. So everyone's down. We're looking around trying to see where the fire's coming from, and, and anyone was wounded. Right. It was a lot of hit and run stuff over in Vietnam. They were just hit and run. And Coincidentally, it was similar for us, except they were a little bit further distance trying to shoot at us. Yeah. So these guys were up close. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't want to get too close to us because they knew it was very dangerous yeah. to get too close and to get fixed. But well, one thing that did happen to me over there, uh, when we were doing a night ambush, mm-hmm. and I walked point on night ambush because sometimes we had a dog that would go with us, and those dogs would alert, and you never get to your ambush site. That night, I had a dog with us. So right. Got the dog behind us, had a compass in my hand, and I had a car 15 on a sling. I didn't have it in front of me. I literally walked into a North Vietnamese lieutenant, walked into him. It was dark as hell. Body to body. Body to body, and he dropped his weapon, hit my feet. He had an American carbine. I was point. And I mean, it was really dark. And you know, you could sort of halfway see ahead of you, but we learned how to be really quiet. I walked into this guy, and as soon as I hit him, I fell back and i came out around with i had a car 15 and went full automatic and i started shooting right here i know because i almost shot myself yeah pointing pointing down towards the ground and i it, it came legs. all the way around i had a 28 round magazine fired the whole magazine in front of me i would have too and everyone hit the dirt and did we called it a mad minute everyone went different directions yeah and then t- uh, the guy in the trail went to the rear and everyone shot for a met what they call a mad minute yeah we called it a death blossom where, is that what you called it yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's just a blossom, of, blossom. of yeah you, you fire all around you until until you, you fire, can yeah. yeah until you can kind of figure out a couple what the hell's these. going on yeah so then everything got quiet for a minute and uh i i, I still didn't quite know what happened but i knew i'd run into somebody mm. i didn't know where he was and i was still scared he was out there so i low i got back a ways and then i called in gunships called specter right and probably 20 minutes specter came over and bl- just blistered the area with i think they had three mini guns on a c-130 yeah yeah so shot all around us yeah for people that so those are those are still in use today it's yeah. a c-130 right so. so we did that and then after everybody calmed down i was probably shook for an hour yeah we finally uh there was no more fire anywhere so this lieutenant was dead in front of me mm-hmm and there was a couple of blood trails. There was nobody else. And so there was. I'd probably hit people behind him, or somebody did. And right. uh, he was probably leading a small patrol somewhere. But it's a real, real reconnaissance. Somewhere patrol. around, somewhere around here, I have his wallet. And, you know, unfortunately, pictures of his family. Yeah, I have that somewhere around here. Yeah. And then I saw a thing not too long ago that if you have any pictures from any Viet Cong that you might have killed or North Vietnamese Army, could you send them to a certain address that maybe somebody's family that they want to see what happened to their. So I, thought, I need to get that out and. Yeah, Probably send that back to somebody, but well, that's kind of the. I'd have to look that up and see where it was, but yeah, I mean, I was that, that was one of those nights where you said I've never been so scared. Well, that was one of those nights. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. You talk about different eras. That was not an uncommon thing in Vietnam. You watches or different keepsakes, things like that. That some of those guys got a little carried away with that. You know? Yeah, yeah, there was a, a lot of very bad stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> teeth and ears and that's right i never really heard of that in the iraqi stuff but no 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 we didn't take really anything off of anybody you know we weren't supposed to do any of that stuff yeah any mutilation or anything like that i never i never saw that but i i'd heard that it happened right so but that's an amazing story so did you fight mostly north vietnamese army 
We did both. Both, okay. Um, we actually fought the um, black pajama, yeah. you know, the terrorists, if you will. Viet Cong. Viet Cong. Yeah. Until the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there six months, and uh, I was a senior lieutenant at the time. I went over there, since I'd waited a while, I'd made first lieutenant. We made lieutenant, first lieutenant in one year. Right. So I was already a six-month first lieutenant, and when our CO left, right prior to the Tet Offensive, a couple of weeks before that, we got a new CO in, a captain. He took over, and I, I was his XO, mm-hmm. became his executive officer. Right. And I went to the rear. I was out of the field. Yeah. I was so happy, I couldn't stand it. Yeah, you're, you're doing I'm done. That. Bullets and beans, right? So two weeks later, the Tet Offensive comes along. He gets shot four times. It didn't kill him. Shot him. (laughs) Guess who gets to go back out in the field? The XO. Right back to the field again. I had the company for the next six months. They never sent another captain, and they just didn't have troops for it. Right. So uh, I ran the company for the next six months. And um, interesting story. When I went to the field to take over from him, I went out with another lieutenant who was going to be with me for three weeks. They had planned this ahead of time. And he was grandson of General Blackjack Pershing from World War One. Wow. And he was lieutenant. And he came out with me to be a platoon leader with me for three weeks until he could go to another unit. Because I was I was shy of a platoon leader. He was only going to be there a while. The first night there, uh, on our, we were in a company uh, perimeter. First night we got attacked by probably three or four hundred bad guys. And I don't know how he didn't get killed. We had a, 50, a couple of 50 cows from our weapons platoon he sat up on top of a bunker with a 50 cal i bet he killed 50 people in front of us just mowed him down i put him in for silver star i yeah. don't know that he got it or not but i sure he certainly deserved hell he probably deserved a medal of honor i don't know how he didn't get killed well wow. we were all in bunkers he's up there shooting that 50 and had a loader i don't even remember how much ammo we had he never did run out but i, I could heard that thing going forever and uh the attack probably lasted about an hour Mm-hmm. And then it was pretty much over. But that 50 cal was going on the whole time. And I didn't quite understand who it was or what it was. How did those, uh, you know, they? You, you, there's a few different movies that kind of have, because uh, yeah, that's basically what I had to go off of. <laughs> right. But uh, there's a few different movies that have a few different depictions of how those attacks went at night. Ours came in first with what they called sappers. Right. And we had wire, all that mm-hmm. wire and stuff around. They didn't have anything like a Bangalore torpedo yeah. or any of that stuff, but... We had claymores set up everywhere. Right. And we had trip flares. Right. So that's what started the whole thing. You get a trip flare go off, you'd see people out there trying to get a hold of those claymores and turn mm-hmm. them around on you. And then after that, then we started taking fire from out of wood line near us. And then the next right. thing, we had literally a mass attack. It came mm-hmm. just full attack. So this is out of a... Trying to come through the wire. Was this out of a company defensive position? Out of a, a company defensive position. I had my whole company there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that time I had probably 110 guys somewhere in the vicinity. Right. But I, I know the body count we had around that perimeter that next day, I think we had about 80 or 90 dead bad, bad guys around it. Not there were Most of them right in front of that 50 cal. Wow. Which was to me was still, uh, still even thinking back on it, it was unbelievable. That was his first night in, in combat. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So I guess for anybody who's uh, listening, that's the, so in a defensive position, you set up fighting positions which are dug in and then you set up wire and mine so uh, we had engineer stakes with bangalore yeah. torpedoes on yeah. them yeah. believe it oh, we wow. had old bangalore as well wow. so yeah you have mines and you have explosives and you have you you set up all of your machine guns and you set up each individual intersecting gun fire in, with intersecting fire really to kind of channel people into specific areas called kill zones right and that that when you try to channel people in there you set up your machine guns on there and they just 
plow and that's right where they came yep and so that particular night that's what we're talking about here is a defensive position where that happened and when it when it did happen i remember they blew whistles Mm -hmm. you could hear the whistles blowing and that's when we we said all right here come the troops and that's exactly what happened well most of them had ak-47s and they had green tracers yeah you ever see the green tracers anyone have those where you were i don't know why they were green i guess the russians had green tracers and that's but that's that's the, what they fired at us all the time. No, I never actually saw a green tracer. Yeah. Um, that I. No, and I. Uh, they didn't use a whole lot of tracers, honestly. And we did. Those like, folks did. Yeah. And our night attacks weren't frequent. You know, we. Uh. You know, I take that back. Maybe I did in Afghanistan. Um, because we had. Oh, there, there were more attacks at night in Afghanistan, but uh, in Iraq there were not as many. <laughs> I always felt like these insurgents in, in Iraq were a little bit lazy. They didn't yeah. like, they didn't like doing believe. things at night. Um, well, ours weren't. <laughs> they did everything at night. I knew that if I needed to get somewhere, if I wanted to go on a patrol and I wanted to get some, you know, I could go set in, because we do these small kill teams, mm-hmm. but we try to set up over like an IED area and just as an Catch overwatch. Them. Yeah, it's, just, it's like a, basically like a little small ambush. Right. But we're just we're looking for a specific activity. Yeah. But I did know if they were going to set those things in, it was going to be in the early morning or just after dusk. So we get set up. I'd walk out at two thirty a.m. and go get set in place to watch them. And I knew that they wouldn't get out basically before just right. just either just before dawn or right at dawn. Get them have breakfast and then go set the yeah, stuff up. Yeah, they're they were. It wasn't like the classical like oh well you know we need to be stand to thirty minutes before dawn and. We did have one incident. Uh, we were on an ambush patrol, and, I, and our battalion commander, you know, it was a Colonel Candinas was his name, and he said, the next lieutenant goes out there and doesn't pop an ambush site, I'm going to court-martial him. Because I guess that had happened. Somehow he knew about that. I don't know exactly how. But, pop an ambush site? You know, set one off. If somebody walks in front of you, go ahead and kill him. So I'm on an ambush patrol. Yeah. I go out that night after he made those comments. And I had uh, nine people. And we had a river. And then a trail came right off the river that headed basically towards our base camp. And our base camp was probably three kilometers away. Yeah. So they set me up on that little road. They were kind of halfway expecting attack and told us that. So I told my guys, we had these little squad radios. And I could talk to them. I had earpieces in my squad radios. And I could talk to them. And I said, look, if anyone comes off that river, when they first got comes, let me know they're coming. If you, I didn't expect anyone to be coming. Yeah. I said, you know, if you're, you're on the right-hand side of this, and we, have, we had three positions to hit a, to ambush them. I said, let's count them, see how many there are before we pop this ambush off. Did I said, they have, I want to know. Were they overlapping those positions? Like, we Yeah, well, there was just three men, three men, and three men. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and, and just off the trail. And we were mm-hmm. hidden in the bush. We had some fields of fire. That night, they came in boats, and they got off right at that trail. And you could hear them coming. There was a bunch of them. So the first guy to come up, and the squad radio guys, he goes, oh, they're, they're coming across the ambush site. And you, you just whispered, because they were making a lot of racket. And I said, well, you start counting, and you let me, the guy on the left side, let me know when they're there. First guy comes up, 27 people in front of us. I said, do not fire. Right. And still people coming. 110 of them came by us. So I called into our Artie, and I said, we've got massive amounts of movement in front of us. They're coming off the river. We don't exactly know where, but I called artillery on their asses. Yeah. I called in almost on us. Danger close. Very close. Killed a bunch of them. Really, a large amount of them. I couldn't pop an ambush. They'd have killed all of us. Yeah. And I knew that. So 
I'm thinking about that the whole time after what that colonel said. Well, I guess I'm going to get court-martialed. I didn't care. At that time, I was so scared. I, I couldn't hardly hold my mic. I was shaking so bad from the, my RTO. This fellow, Steve Ficklin, was my machine gunner. He was with me on that one. Anyway, uh, some of them did attack our base camp from three three different locations. It was a battalion base. Mm-hmm. So and we could hear them screaming out there, and I mean, I know we got a bunch of them. So they attack our base camp, and I told them, I said, they're headed your direction. I said, you guys need to get ready. There's a bunch of them coming your way. And I said, I'm sure that's where they're going. And uh, then they all left later on. When they did, they, they were running, literally running, dragging wounded with them right through where we were. I had them go by me dragging somebody five feet away from me and didn't step on us. Right. So it was another one of those things, and we just laid low. We let them go. Yeah, because well, I think you set the ambush, but really at that point, you're kind of a forward observation site. We were site. just observers, and I called yeah. artillery in again on them. Yeah. Once they came through, I called it in on the river. Well, and technically, you did open up with your most casualty-producing <laughs> weapon. <laughs> That's the doctrine, right? I was good good with artillery. Yeah. I was a pretty good spotter. So anyway, we got back. I went in my company commander. I said, mm-hmm. look, here's what happened. I want to tell you what happened right off the bat. I said, so if I need to be court-martialed, then you know, go ahead. Well, the colonel called me and he said, no, I, I'd, have, I'd have done the same thing. You, to, you didn't have anybody out there that you could do any, do any good with. So Yeah, and at and that point... you kept everyone from dying, so... Well, and everybody that would be able to support you would, would have gotten fixed within a few minutes. That's right, because they were all on the way there. So they, yeah. they had several hundred attack that base camp in yeah. three different locations. I mean, tactically, that's the only thing you could yeah. have done. So anyway, that was one of those things I really tried to second guess what I had done. And, you know, all in all, after years from then, it didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you get right down to it, we're still alive. Yeah. So, and some of them might still be because we didn't ambush them, but a lot of them didn't make it because of the artillery. Yeah. I think about when I was a company commander in Afghanistan, this is one of the first couple nights. We would come in as a full company and we'd take over for the company that was there before us, right? Leave them. And so the first night that I was in charge, we get a call later in the evening and said, hey, yeah, uh, we have this special forces team that's going to go do a raid in your area. I'm the landowner at that point. Come through you? Uh, yeah, well, basically, yeah. They, they they fly in, they do a raid, and they fly out. And so we had to stand by for a while to get confirmation that, yeah, they are there, they're doing everything. And, and so I was supposed to go in, and I was supposed to basically come in behind them, talk to the folks after it happened, basically try to talk to the local leaders, which I rolled my eyes at because it was just crazy. <laughs> well, they end up getting in a firefight, and they kill a few people. They get who they're going after, but... They leave as the sun's coming up, and you know, folks were kind of getting up, getting angry. And, and so, I'm in Humvees, and it's back in this valley. There's one road into this valley, and it's on a cliff face. You, of course, it is. You look up, and it's just straight up, and you look down, you're like, like I'm looking out of, out of a Humvee. Okay, well, where's the, where's the ledge? Because mm-hmm. it's literally right next to the wheel. And uh, if I open the door, you know, like, hey, well, step out <laughs> off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, it depends on where, where on the road you are. So we kind of get to a point, and, and there's a washout. We can't, you know, we can't go by it. So we, I'm like, all right, guys, we got to get out. I'm like, okay, well, we got to move on foot, and then we'll take whoever we need on foot from here. And we're walking up this road because I literally can't go anywhere else. If I could get off the road, I would have gotten off the road, and I would have taken another way. I don't no, care if no I no cover, no nothing, nothing. So we come around this bend, and the bend is right. You basically see the village, and I was like, all right, one guy's gonna take a step around the bend. He takes one step around the bend, machine gun opens up. He bounces back as quick as I've ever seen anybody jump back. I bet. And I got on the radio. And I was like, hey, do we have any air cover? Do we have anything here? And they're like, no, we don't have anything to give you right now. Well, I'm just going to tell you right now that if you don't have anything to give me, there's nothing I can do about this. Right. Um, and sometimes there's not. 
it led to a whole other situation where I had to go meet with the local leaders and there was a big old crowd that built up and it ended up being a huge investigation. Yeah. Just uh, you guys and a big crowd of bad guys, I guess. Villains. Well, we didn't know, you know, who, who all was in the crowd. You know, they started surrounding our trucks and, uh, and it was a very delicate situation to say the least, but um, that was definitely one where I had to go sit and talk to a general that was investigating about kind of how everything went down. All right. That was so, a lot of fun. Why, so tell me what happened there, yeah. Captain. He was very fair, very, very good. very good, but I think they were more concerned about what led up to that, that situation. This seems like a good spot for a break. One thing about being in the military is that a lot of choices are either made or made easy for you. Not sure what to wear today? You're covered. Are you deployed to a remote place and don't know what to eat? What luck? It's MRE Roulette. Can't figure out when to take vacation? Not to worry. Sometimes, though, you need every option you can find. Like when you need to make a unit video and Thunderstruck for the thousandth time just won't do. Or you're trying to line up some badass gear for your unit. Well, that's what Emblem Athletic can provide for you with unlimited colors, sizes, styles, and design options. You want a Technicolored skull with cross machine guns on a maroon XXL hoodie? You got it. Just make your way to emblemathletic.com and take a style quiz to get started. In less than two minutes, you'll be on your way to wearing a Velociraptor on a Bradley, flying Old Glory with inexplicable eagle wings on the back of an electric blue tank top. And will those hypernatural design colors fade? Hell no. They're dyed right into the fabric. Put the Emblem design team to work on making unit gear that is uniquely, undeniably, unfailingly yours. Now let's get back to Bill. You know, I noticed that you know, World War One on up. Well, we always used troops as cannon fodder. World War One was a perfect example. World yeah. War Two was too. Yeah. Vietnam, they started getting away from that as much, but you, we were still kind of cannon fodder. Whereas yeah. later on, when you guys came along, it, they really tried their best not to get people killed. Yeah. And some units were better than others in <laughs> World War Two. Like I think airborne units were a little bit better about understanding, like because mm -hmm. the, the whole point of the airborne unit is minimalism is how many people can we use to get this job done the best we can, right? And I think they were a little bit better about preserving, but I think just the nature of the job just got a lot of people killed. Well, D-Day partic particular. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that's done a little bit better now, but uh, there's kind of a give and take to it. I think there's right. a nature of current warfare where it's like maybe we're a little bit too risk-averse and we're not willing to take some necessary risks to get some big gains out of it. Well, they weren't that way in Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> They, they did everything they could to get get the bad guys. Right. We won all the battles. We, we won everything. We just didn't win the war because we left. Right. You know, that was the only thing about Vietnam. They say we lost that war. Well, really didn't. We just backed out of it and got out of there because of all the uh, animosity towards that. And, and really, I never saw any reason to be there while I was there. Right. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting concept to talk about, you know, considering the recent events of, you know, peace still signed with mm -hmm. the Taliban. Just imagine if... As a country, we had the same level of tolerance and patience with Vietnam as we have with Afghanistan. Exactly. You know, remember the peace symbol? Mm -hmm. You you know what? Remember what it looks like? Right. You know what we call that? What's that? It was called the footprint of the American chicken because it looked like a chicken's foot. Right. Upside and down. The people that flashed it were chickens. Mm -hmm. We thought. Right. The anti-war protesters. Right. People that burned their draft cards and. Because we went and did what we were supposed to do for our country, patriotically right or wrong. Right. Yet they didn't. Right. So anyway, that was we, we had nothing but animosity towards those folks, even though they were really right. Yeah. When you get right yeah. down to it, they were right. A big reason why I want to do what I'm doing now is I think there's a big gap between people understanding when you hear on the news, hey, we're sending 10,000 troops to this place. 
there should be people that should ask whoever they're why representing. Why are we doing this? Okay, well, why is that important? Is this really a strategic initiative of, of our country? Are we going to waste lives again? Right, right. Or, or are we sending people into quagmire mm-hmm. um, to kind of well, when we went we back to Iraq, I thought, oh, another Vietnam, and it was. Mm-hmm. And the same I mean, as Af- far as having to be there. Yeah, same with Afghanistan, too, because, I mean, r- really, strategically, what do, you, what, what do we get out of it? Oh, I guess we don't have terrorist groups going on, but yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, but they're still there. You know, there, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out in the last couple of days. The Taliban, one of the things that we have asked them to do is, is to sever ties with al-Qaeda, and, and they are still saying that they they will not completely sever them, so... Well, we'll see. I know they're trying really hard to get everybody home, but yeah, um, doubt it'll ever happen. I'm not sure that's something we'll ever get away from, but it would be good to really take critical. There's been a lot of good that has come out of the Vietnam War in, in retrospect of... I think so. I think it was uh, General H.R. McMaster that wrote Dereliction of Duty. It was just a searing criticism of strategic leadership during that era. And I think we could probably use a lot of that still from the last 19 years. Have you watched any of the documentary series, The Vietnam War? All of them. That's a, the ones that came on recently, yeah. I, I think they just do a great job of really... One thing that people don't understand about our current conflicts is it's extremely complex. And I don't think people understood Vietnam and the complexity of it. Yeah, it was um, too. And who Ho Chi Minh was, how long our relationship was with him, and really how our political stances and our, our strategic stances with him and then against him really played out. And I think that's the same kind of level of lack of understanding about Iraq and Afghanistan. That Well, Afghanistan is a little bit better documented because of what we did there in the 80s against the Russians. We are our own worst enemy in, in, in a lot of ways. The seeds of the Taliban were planted at that, at that time. They were. I just really hope that we continue to, to have that critical analysis as we go forward. Maybe we won't get into some of these conflicts by doing that. Right. But when the war, war drums start banging, a lot of people, their hearts start racing a little bit too much. And that's normal. It is. I'd go back and do it again. Right. I mean, if I, if I was that age again. Yeah. And I've told people over and over again, I would not change a single thing yeah, about, about my thing. time in the Army. But. You know, I'm, I've always been really proud of the fact that I did that. Mm-hmm. And my brother also. So, and yeah. I never ended up, I'll say that knock on wood, I never had any PTSD that I know of. I may have and don't know it, but never really has really affected me. Right. And I think we, we've talked about that before. I, I, <clears throat> Very fortunately, I have the same thing. Probably didn't see quite as much as you did, but within those two deployments, I did see a lot. And oh, sure. I've never had the things where, you know, I have flashbacks or have dreams or have things like that. And nor did I. But there was a time after each deployment that I did have conditioned responses to certain things. When I got back from Iraq, I was at a pool somewhere and somebody shot one of the bigger bottle rockets. And I, I heard the shh. And it made, me your think, attention. It, it made me think about an RPG. It does. Um, I got wounded from an RPG. I didn't know that. I, I got wounded from a mortar round, and then the second time was from an RPG. Yeah, I should have gotten someone wounded fired by. at at us. They use them as anti personnel, just like you. Yeah, and uh, the RPGs you see on TV, you can sort of watch them go along. No, these things you don't see. Those things no. are so fast, you yeah, can't even are, see them. Yeah, they are super fast. They're a lot faster yeah. than people yeah. think they are. Yeah. But, anyway, get the shrapnel off of one of those. They just shoot it at in front of you and blow shrapnel yeah. all the troops. And, so that happened. So that you know that got my heart racing. The first thing I thought was I need to drop you know drop down, but I like caught myself before I did it. And then when I got back from Afghanistan, we got hit by rockets and mortars every day. And I was in a yeah, we did a lot of that too. Rockets and mortars. Yeah, it's a company outpost, and we had 107s <clears throat> and and, uh, and and mortar mortars hit us about every day. And then in Italy, is it Christmas? They shoot fireworks. But one of those nights they shoot fireworks. 
I was laying in bed and I just I couldn't go to sleep because my heart rate was increasing because that was my natural response to go explosions. Yeah, to explosions. Okay, I need to get up and I need to go get on the radio because I need to start directing things. And so I just couldn't go to sleep. That went away. Yeah, yeah eventually does. That's to me. That's that's conditioned response. Uh, conditioned. Uh, yeah. Speaking of rockets. Um, we came back in when I was company commander. We mm-hmm. came back in our unit one day. We were in a company logger again. They knew if I got back too soon, they'd send us back out. So we stopped about, I don't know, maybe uh, 600 meters from our uh, base camp yeah. in a bomb crater. And I said, look, let's just set up a little bit of perimeter here. Anybody want to get in the bomb crater and take a bath? And just, guys, knock yourself out. But let's get a perimeter set up here in case anybody happens along. So some of my troops jumped in this bomb crater. Well, about five or six minutes later, one of them says, hey, there's something down here. And I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, I kicked something when I was in here. So he, so he dives down. He goes, man, there's a bunch of plastic down here. So three or four more of our guys get in the water, and they start pulling these big, huge things of plastic out of there. Well, they were boxes of ammo. They were boxes of AK-47s. Then they started finding parts of rockets. We pulled out. You wouldn't believe what we pulled out of that thing just because we were screwing off, not wanting to go back to the base camp because yeah. we didn't want to get back early and tell battalion i was back yeah and they'd say why are you back so soon so then the next thing you know we have a couple generals out there and they're coming in the helicopters and they have other people engineers coming out it was a full cache of all the rockets and we weren't too far from saigon they would use those rockets and sit them up on these uh-huh. rocket yeah. launchers and fire them into saigon yeah that's a uh and we we i bet you we had 100 rockets down and that was a huge bomb crater I think that might be probably a uh, over half century old TTP for for folks with those 107 rockets is yeah, to set them up on those cross those old 107s. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they just like it's a very very easy way you can set them up on like a little cross. That's right. And, and aim just them, fire them. Yep, yeah, just fire. Kind of like the missiles that Hitler fired. They just shot them at London. They're bound to hit something. Yeah, absolutely. The V1s. Yeah. But um, uh, that was a, that was the weirdest thing, and we found all kind. And of course, we saved some of those boxes of ak-47 to swap with the air force for steaks yeah we would swap for steaks <laughs> you know ak-47 get you enough steaks to feed your whole company oh wow i mean you just go with the air certain air force guys yeah we'll take care of that yeah if you ever want anything nice you always have to go to an air force base exactly so you weren't supposed to do that but uh-huh. we did it anyway so um, our bartering process so we had to go out on a patrol i'd been a platoon leader for uh, maybe a little over a month because I, I when I when I arrived in Iraq I wasn't a platoon leader yet I got called up when uh, when another guy got pulled out you know it was very unexpected too so I just kind of popped in and like oh hey here hey guys here I am I'm just gonna shut up and just listen to my platoon sergeant for a little while and <laughs> and kind of gradually assert myself very very fortunate to have some extremely awesome non-commissioned officers but we're out there and we had to go out into this area and we had to do like a search basically just had to be out there for almost a certain amount of time very similar. We had searched where we needed to search, and I was like, well, guys, I mean, I mean let's just kick around a little bit longer. We've got to be out here, so I, you go that way, go that way, and, and come back here and you know, however long, and we'll go through the motion. Like I said, I had really great NCOs that I had to pull them back a lot of times. They just went, and they just got curious, and they wanted to find stuff. They, they, you know, they were very very much go-getters. And so I get her call on the radio. I was like, sir, you got to come see this. It's like, what? Okay. So I make my way over there, and so they found this truck with all this stuff in it, and it was RPGs. Well, um, it was loaded then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the truck was already loaded. So we go a little bit further, and we walk inside this big chicken house, and inside the chicken house, they had a whole wall of cardboard boxes, and they had this homemade explosives factory. Oh. 
And so they had been making explosives with fertilizer and all sorts of stuff. And so they set it all on the floor and they'd lay it out and they'd kind of you know, chop it up and let it dry out and everything like that. And we kept on searching around and around and around the building. Found dead bodies from people that had been killed. We have really? we found uh, a couple other caches of things of other weapons and stuff. All that just from kicking around, just like no, exactly just like you're saying. Around, so yeah, yeah, just to get over with. Yeah. Well, you know, when I finally got through being the company commander of that whole business, they asked me if I wanted to stay another six months, and of course, the answer to that was no. And so, not only no, but hell no. At any rate, when I finally did leave, of course, I got some good commendations out of it and all that, but I ended up, I put in for Presidio of San Francisco. There's no infantry there. Dream sheet. For some weird reason, they sent me there. I was going to get out. I had about six months to go to get out. Yeah. While I was there, um, I would work for a three-star. He was a commanding general, 6th Army in Presidio of San Francisco. Right. And I, he, I worked for the deputy chief of intelligence. I guess he was a two-star. He called me in one day and said, can uh, I understand you like working on cars? He said, would you uh, be interested in helping me with a car in my garage that I'm working on? I said, yes, sir, I'd love to. I, you know, anything for a two-star. I'm a captain. <laughs> so I go to his house. When I get there, I get out of my car, and I'd heard this big bang in his garage, and his car had been up on a set of scissors jacks, and he was under it and fell on him. And he was a screaming bloody murderer. I, I just happened to pull up right about that time. And I got one of those scissors jacks. It laid over. And mm-hmm. I got the jack the car, got it, and pulled him out by his feet. It broke five or six of his ribs. Oh, wow. And so I got him in the hospital, took him to Hamilton Air Force Base, and took care of him. And I stayed with him for two or three hours when they finally patched him up and wrapped him and told him there wasn't much they could do. And <laughs> You're just going to have to deal so, with it. You're going to be But I finally got him back home. Well, two weeks later, he called me in his office, and he said, you get, you're getting out, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He goes, why, why do you want to get out? Why don't you just stay in? He says, what would you like to do in the Army if you stayed in? I said, well, I need to get a degree. He goes, well, we can probably bootstrap you. He says, but you need to do another tour or something before we do that. What does bootstrap mean? They call it bootstrapping you to college. Mm-hmm. Your assign, next assignment would be to get through college. Okay, yeah. And they did that with certain officers. And I said, yeah, I'd like to be a helicopter pilot. So he goes, when do you want to go? I said, well, I don't care, like a fool. I was in flight school three weeks later. <laughs> I was there. And so that's how I ended up being a helicopter pilot. That's a whole nother year in Vietnam, but never did get the bootstrap. So I, when I finally got out, I went back to college and got my degree. But Where'd you go? Middle Tennessee State University. I got a degree in, in aerospace administration, and I've flown and managed aerospace assets ever since then. <clears throat> so I actually worked in my degree field, which a lot of people don't ever get to do. I can tell you one thing. You don't do that coming out of the infantry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> both my uh, dad and brother are helicopter pilots. and uh, They both were? Yeah, well, yeah, my dad my dad was. My brother still is. Um, he's flying for the military. Yeah, he is. I think about this, and I'm not an aviator, but I know pilots of the first-gen Hueys and the first-gen Cobras are a different breed of pilot because you had a single engine, and that was it. It was it. When it quit, I had it happen. I had one engine failure while I was over there and to the ground, and then I got shot down twice. So you got, you well, got shot I, down twice? I was twice? there about a month and a half, and I was a platoon leader mm-hmm. as a captain. And uh, we were flying along, and I was with a guy named Rosie Rosales. He was a gunship pilot, and the engine quit. I was flying, and so we entered auto rotation. He was eating peanut butter and crackers out of a sea rations kit. And while we're in the auto rotation, he, did, he could hardly talk. He had his mouth full of peanut butter. He says, do a 180. So I did a 180. There was a little fire support base right behind us. And I could see it up there, so I was aiming for that thing. And he, t- he ate the rest of this stuff and threw it out the window and said, I've got the aircraft. And did an auto-rotation, touchdown. I called Mayday. I gave a Mayday mm-hmm. call, and I mean, our blades were still turning when a cavalry troop showed up. Uh, two little birds and two cobras. Next thing you know, they're right over the top of us. 
and uh, we didn't hurt the aircraft. So they, they uh, came in. And what happened? Somebody left a wrench up on the engine, went through the engine. That did happen occasionally. Some type of wrench went through the engine. Wow. So if you can't explain, I'm, I'm still trying to like, somebody left a wrench in there, but so auto rotation. You know when you ride a bicycle, mm-hmm. two-wheeler, and your pedal? Right. It's got a sprag clutch on it. So when that engine's running, it runs through a sprag clutch. It runs the rotor system. Right. So if you lose an engine and that engine quits going through that sprag clutch, it's like you quit pedaling. Mm-hmm. Now the, if you push the collective lever down, which is what puts a bite in the blades, this gives you your power. Right. Now you have a flat pitch blade. And as you enter auto rotation, the aircraft just starts descending about 1,500 feet a minute. The rush of air up through that rotor system keeps 100% rotor RPM all the way to the ground. Right. So if you find yourself a place to go that's open at about in a Huey at about 50 feet, you flare, you pull the nose up, and that stops your forward momentum and it stops your sink rate. Right. To a point, right to a point, and you let that you hold that nose high until the aircraft gets about seven or eight, nine feet off the ground, and then you level the skids, and it falls right out from under you. Right. And when it does, you pop that collective lever, which puts a bite in the blades, and it just settles, and it catches the airplane. You got one shot at it, and it goes just flop, 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 flop. Down it goes, and you touch. Yeah. You, you won't even hurt it if you do it right. Right, yeah. So that, <clears throat> as a comparison, is that it's not quite like gliding down, but it almost be like coming you down a parachute. You are gliding, but it, you look between your feet yeah. through the chin bubble, and that's where you're going. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like coming down in a parachute. You know you're coming down at a it's certain rate. It's almost like a parachute. Right. You don't go far. Right. So you're pretty much going what's what's right ahead of you there. Well, I, I hear you explain it, and I think about we had steerable chutes. When I was with uh, you know the 5th Ranger Training Battalion in Dahlonega, we'd jump out of Blackhawks. And so they'd take us up above a farmer's field, and we'd jump out, and we had these little steerable chutes. Well, part of it is just understanding you always have a certain amount of forward well, so thrust. Can, you learn how to fly. Right. Yeah, you have always, <laughs> always have a certain amount of forward thrust. Is more like gliding, but all I could really control was my rate of descent and where I was directed. So I could let out air, or I could hold air. And you could flare at the bottom to stop uh, your descent and forward airspeed. Gives you right. lift when you do that. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's not a lot of that sounded the same. It was the same as an auto rotation. Yeah. <laughs> so what about getting shot down? First tour, uh, I got shot down as an infantryman, and in, I was in the back. Uh-huh. My first tour, we got shot down out of a formation. That guy just did an auto rotation. Nobody got hurt. That's awesome. And then the second tour, the, the worst time I got shot down, I was flying a gunship, and there was two of us. Mm-hmm. And you'd fire on a target, and then you'd break. And the guy behind you would cover your break. Yeah. <clears throat> so you'd do a racetrack pattern. Right. And so we were firing on a 50 cal, 51 cal, bad guys. The other aircraft did the break, and I was flying in. I flew over flew a 50 cal, 51 cal. I didn't see. And they shot straight up, right through the aircraft, right through the engine. Went wow. right up through the floorboards, right up through the engine. Yeah. And I, I was doing about 60 to 70 knots because we fired yeah, that'll about that. go straight that. through your engine block, too. Yeah, it went right through the engine. And all I had time to do was turn. I did a 90-degree turn to the left and did an auto-rotation into a rice paddy. And uh, when I flared at the bottom, I hit a rice paddy dike mm-hmm. with my skids. The aircraft jumped over the rice paddy, took the skids off, hit the rice paddy di- on the other side. And when it hit, it hit real hard, and the main rotor system came down and cut the tail boom off. And when it did that, it, the aircraft flipped upside down. Door gunner and crew chief got thrown out in the mud. Nobody hurt. Thank God. And I was—I remember sitting there. I was like, "Here I am, upside down in a helicopter with with water coming in, thinking, how, how in the heck did I get here?'" And I he said, "The okay, the other pilot, are you okay?" Because, "Yep." He said, "We're going to get wet." So we loosened our belts and crawled out of those that thing. I crawled, you know, crawled out of my seat out back door in an upside down helicopter. 
But we were there on the ground for four or five hours before they got to us, and that 51 cal that shot us down, we were mm-hmm. taking fire from it. That's how close we were to it. Wow. Now, we were lucky that we were behind a berm. I was talking about being yeah. behind some natural cover. But the gunships kept all the bad guys off of us. And then they finally came in and picked us up in a Huey. And it, Huey took several hits getting us out of there. But I thought I was going to die for a year. I have a picture of myself I'm sitting in the back of the helicopter. Someone took a picture of me. I was all wet. And, yeah. And I still have that. Sure, so you're, so you're looking like a like a wet rat back there. I did, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was miserable back there. Yeah, I, I but we, I was so glad to get out of there. And then I didn't really want to fly after that again, but I had no choice. Yeah. <laughs> so I you know they get back on the horse thing. Yeah, yeah. I, we did. I, I got to. I flew that afternoon. Yeah. And the commander said, "You're flying again today." Sorry. There probably aren't as many shortages as far as personnel yeah. go now. There um, was I'm sure back y'all were then. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that that was kind of some of the stuff that we did back then. But just that's the kind of stuff that happened right and you just kind of went on about your business i had friends that got shot down more than that right flying little birds mm-hmm. they got those people were crazy yeah they go down and take her skid lift the lift the thatched roof off of a hooch looking for bad guys and, it's like, and they get shot down right there because they found them yeah you know just oh. stupid things like that always oh, so uh the smaller the smaller helicopters like the the kiowa and then the little bird yeah i always thought it was crazy I had friends that that flew them, you know. And they just, you know they have an M4 in their cockpit. They open up the window and they shoot shoot at people out of the. Out of I know. The, yeah, it's like pop pop pop. I'm like oh, you know, our little birds had uh, they took put hand grenades in glasses. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd pull the pin and throw the thing out. Then it would hit and the glass would break and mess all glass. Mm-hmm. And then there you have a little bomb out there. And then yeah. they always had a uh, door gunner with them. Yeah. And they usually had a M60 on a bungee. Some of them had mini guns on them. Right. And it's stow mounted on the skid. Yeah, and always, they just aim the helicopter. I, yeah, I always thought it was really funny the stories about uh, the way you uh, the way you calibrate the minigun. <laughs> you just look where it's shooting at about the range you, you expect to shoot, and then you put a grease mark. We absolutely did that. Yeah, they use a grease mark mark to see where the rockets would go on the gunships. Right. And rather than now the the Cobras had a sight, you actually worked. Right. Yeah, it yeah. had a drop down sight with a double trigger, and you could move the gun left and right, up and down. It's all that stuff was just uh, great fun. I think one of the last conflicts where things were pretty loose like that, you, you talk about being put in flight training like three weeks later. Mm-hmm. There's a, a much larger cumbersome bureaucracy around people moving around now. And Yeah, you know. exactly. When I was in the Guard in college, I need a Huey. So, okay, go do an additional flight training period. Just get a Huey and go somewhere. Right. Or get a little bird and just block. Well, where do you want? I think I'll go visit my daughter down in Jacksonville and just take a Huey down there. Right. We just did it. <laughs> and if it was that way in the States, you know, yeah. you imagine the way it was in, in you know, in Vietnam. And well, you know, I, I picked a down crew up in an F-4 one time. Mm-hmm. I was in a Huey. So are those the Phantoms? Phantoms, yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, long story, I went to the hospital after we picked them up. They'd been shot down right over us. We, we saw them go up. We saw them pe- punch out. Right. Picked them up. Neither one of them were Punch hurt. out, is that eject? Eject, yeah. Yeah, yeah saw them eject, so. And we picked him up, went to the hospital. It was a lieutenant colonel. He was a squadron commander up in Da Nang. And he says, if you come up to Da Nang, I'll give you an F-4 ride. So I took a Cobra up there. I did it. Told my battalion commander, I said, I'm going to take a couple of Cobras up to Da Nang. I said, this, the F-4 pilots invited us up there. Do you mind? He said, no, go ahead. But that's how easy it was. <laughs> so I went up there with two uh, Cobras. We got rides in the F-4. The first one, we went up to 60,000 feet, and he rolled it upside down. He said, we're going to just go up to 60,000 feet. He said, I've always wanted to do this, and we're going to go Mach 2.2 on the way way down. And that's what we did. Went up to high and 
came down, did 2.2, and I was just in the, I just rode. I was yeah. just in the back. And then the second day, we went out over North Vietnam and met some of his uh, aircraft coming back from a raid. And we joined up with them and tanked on a KC-135 and then flew back to the base. And I got it. That was about two hours. I got wow. to fly in that thing, two and a half hours. But we didn't go into bad harm's way or yeah, anything. Because yeah. yeah, the, back, the backseater would normally take care of them. Yeah. All I was just a rider back there. Did he want to go up in the Cobra? Oh, I'll, I let him fly the Cobra. Wow. Absolutely, yeah. Now, flying it from the front seat, it was very difficult to do because yeah. it had uh, side stick controllers in the front. But in the back, it had a stick. But you move that front one a little bit. You move it an inch, the back one move about three inches. Oh, wow. So it was very sensitive to try to hover. And yeah. You could fly it in the air. So, yeah, he flew it. That's and awesome. I, and I was armed, so we had armament. So we went out and found a place and fired a minigun and <laughs> let him shoot rockets. That's amazing. <laughs> and I also had a 40-millimeter cannon. They called, yeah. it a thumb, uh, they called it a chunker. Mm. And, you, you know, it had it fired 300 rounds a minute. That's incredible. I, I think the only thing that was anywhere close to, I don't know. So when I was in uh, Afghanistan, the, the second place I was in, literally out in the middle of nowhere, uh, we were there for six months and we got maybe three convoys that actually came out to resupplies. All our other resupplies came through a helicopter resupply. We got water and Gatorades were dropped by uh, C-17. Really? They parachuted stuff into you? Mm-hmm. And then we actually, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life is, uh, what are those old airplanes? I forgot what they were called. Basically, they would fly in extremely low altitude and they had resupply bundles out of out of the back so they lower their ramp we got them to drop it onto our helicopter landing zone <clears throat> they would hit a certain point and they would just straight up pull pitch straight up yeah they drop two engines uh two engines it looked yep. like a box mm-hmm. yeah the resupply would fall right fall out right of the out. back mm-hmm. and land right on our helicopter landing zone mm-hmm. and i was like wow <laughs> like i was just completely cool. blown away with those guys yeah. but well, you know, we we both had our experiences over there, and uh, the, the the flying part to me was, I didn't particularly care for the infantry, mm-hmm. but the flying part was fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could get killed as easily or, or easier than, but it was still just a lot of fun. But the Cobras right. were just, you know, I felt like I finally got to shoot back. Right. Because <clears throat> most of the time, like you were talking, about, you'd get fired on, you didn't know where it was coming from. Right. Very seldom did we even see the bad guys. Just just didn't see them. <clears throat> And I, you know, honestly, I felt like when I had air support, particularly when I had helicopters, close air support, mm-hmm. I didn't really feel like this as much with like with the airplanes. Well, the helicopters get right down, get slow, and get in. Well, yeah. Well, when I'd call call them in on targets, I always felt okay. like, hey, those guys are the ones pulling the trigger. But I was like, yeah. that made me and it made the, uh, the other guys around me feel like we can actually fight back. We can actually do something exactly. here because they're a part of our fight. I consider them one of my maneuver units. And I can maneuver them to help move my guys into place. One thing about my whole experience, I was, I was probably, it didn't get to happen to you, I don't think, but I, I was enlisted for a while. Yeah. Not a long time, mm-hmm. but long enough to see what it was like. Right. I was never treated poorly by officers or anything like right. that. Nothing like that ever happened to me. But you were the low person on the totem pole. So I, I got to see what it was like to be enlisted. Yeah. So when I became an officer, I think uh, it gave me some, uh, a lot more empathy. Right having seen how it can be <laughs> right and and being an officer was like head and shoulders above being enlisted oh absolutely i mean no doubt about that so especially back in that day yeah especially back then so um back then i think it got a little different later on it, it did you, but uh, the people were more attuned to talking to officers but back then they didn't 
Yeah, didn't, and they were afraid to. Didn't eat with them. You didn't, didn't eat with them. Didn't do anything with them. Right, and that was that was a big thing for me. Is one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever, I ever got before I ever became an officer was, you need to eat with your guys. Yes. Now we did in the infantry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, we were all all together. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're out in the field, like in yeah. the field, but back base camp we didn't. Mm-hmm. We were, they were, it was separate dining facilities, if right. you will, or whatever you want to call that. Right. But most of the time we ate sea rations. Yeah. That's all we had. Oh, you were talking about the helicopters taking you food. We took food to the troops every night. Nice. I think they were called thermite cans. Mm-hmm. Kept everything hot. We deliver those to all the units, and we, they call them ash and trash. Yeah. And we take sea rations and then those things out, and we tried to give them hots at least three or four times a week. Right. Every unit that was in our you know our area of operation. That's awesome. Which I thought was kind of cool. And yeah, that's we very would cool. Sling load water in. We had these uh, blivets. Mm-hmm. We'd sling load those things in and drop them. And they that's how they had their fresh water and all that stuff. There's two things I always felt were some of the best morale boosters. One was a hot meal. Exactly. And two was at least a night or two in a place where you didn't feel like you were going to get killed. I know. And those two things can make people feel a world better in a very short yeah, well, time. Absolutely. Sleeping in and having slit trenches and yeah, <laughs> all that fun stuff. Yeah. You know, like I said, our, our, our experience is a little bit different. And when y'all are out on patrols, I mean, we, if we were out overnight, you know, we'd get into position. But typically, a lot of times we had vehicles. Very seldom we didn't have vehicles with we us. We never had vehicles. Yeah. and uh, Except for helicopters. Right. And so I was out and back. Yeah. Just different eras, different mm-hmm. times. I knew how to do all that and, you know, went through the training for all of it. But it was just different. I know. The training was a lot of times worse than being in the field. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Especially the ranger training. Yeah. Well, yeah, we went through two different eras of that, too. and I, Yeah, ours wasn't. I don't think ours was as hard as yours. If, I see what the SEALs go through now. Mm-hmm. They didn't go through that back then. Yeah, some ways it was, some ways it wasn't. Yeah. I think you were held to a little bit higher standard of... Uh, we lost a lot of people going through ranger training. Mm-hmm. Not, not that many in uh, jump school. Yeah. OCS lost half. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think uh, it's still, from the people that start from the first day to the end, I still think it's maybe just over half yeah to what ranger training was yeah for for ranger training it's still that way and i was one of those people i just stayed in the middle yeah i just didn't <laughs> great we call it the gray guy yeah i was right in the damn middle i just yeah. kept my mouth shut and did yes or no yeah. or three bags full you don't want to outshine anybody and you know if you're two in the dark yeah. it means that you're you're getting people's attention in the bad way and you're then not like, doing what you're supposed to yeah do, yeah man. people you know, people don't like you you got to yeah. be the gray guy. You got to stay in the middle, and you can get through just about anything if you're the gray guy. <laughs> That's just learning. You just use your head. Yeah, to get through that. So. But uh, yeah, ranger training for you know, now it's you know very technically graded, and you know, you have to you have to not only get through it, but you have to get through it doing the right things. One of the things that I kind of run into and in that I see, you know, there's there's a gap between even Vietnam veterans and like more mm-hmm. recent veterans. People don't get really involved in the VFW, American Legion, some of the other organizations now, but very well documented how with Vietnam veterans, coming back was a lot harder for them. They didn't get a lot of the recognition that a lot of veterans that are coming back from modern day wars have gotten. Do you think people, civilians, can do a better job of engaging Vietnam veterans where they'll open up? or, or Well, you know, uh, now I, I don't uh, usually wear Vietnam hats or anything yeah, like that. I, I don't wear anything stuff, either. Every once in a while somebody will say something, well, you're about that right age. Were you, were you a Vietnam veteran? I yeah. Said, well, yeah. They, and everyone goes, oh, thank you for your service. Well, well that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's nice of them to say that. But it is nice to at least have the recognition. You know, when I came back, 
You remember I told you I was at uh, Presidio? Mm-hmm. I went to Berkeley to do some courses. I had to wear a baseball cap because I had short hair. Right. Uh, literally. I yeah. couldn't stand them. I mean, understandably so. I mean, there's but, a lot of uh, tension. Nowadays, I think, people are, I think people are doing a pretty good job, actually, for the military. I, I really do. They, they seem to be. They seem to kind of care that if you were in the military, you've probably seen some of it, too. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, they, I don't know how they could do much better because the, almost everybody I've ever talked to that found out I was in the military said something nice about it. You know, I actually having a conversation with a friend recently. How do you think people could better, I guess, engage, kind of talk about it? You know, I know, I understand some people are never going to be okay with talking about their experiences, but, you know, what do you think somebody could say if, you know, like you said, the kind of the common phrase, just thank you for your service, and that's very appreciated. A step beyond that, a, a level deeper, how can someone be... You know, I don't, I don't really know how they could, to yeah. tell you the truth, because most people, are, they, they think so little about, the, not that they're against the military, that's not something that's in their thought process during right. the day, and they just have, oh, you were in the military? Well, thank you for, yeah. it's just com- it's, it's like very an separated. automatic response. Well, it's very isolated, I think, yeah. in and a lot of ways They're just trying now. to show that they, they you know, that at least that somebody acts like they care nowadays, yeah, yeah. a little bit. Very seldom do I have anyone ask me about it. Mm-hmm. Lisa, my wife, has a friend that's uh, married to a Navy SEAL, Vietnam right. era. I was talking to my friend, and she says he has never said a word about Vietnam, and we were going to go visit them. She said, "Well, you, th- you, th- you, you want to say anything to him about Vietnam?" I said, "He'll talk to me." Yeah. I said, "I guarantee it." So we had dinner with him, and we he started asking me where I'd been and all that stuff, just like like we're doing. And I, he opened up, and his wife sat there and just in awe. She said, "I never have heard any of this." Yeah. And she said something to me later, and I said, "Well, that's because you weren't over there." Yeah, I said, and he didn't want to burden you with anything bad feelings he may have had because he'd been through some pretty much major crap, you know. Yeah, a lot of friends killed and all that stuff. So, you know, and that's what I was actually talking with my friend about is that I I could probably sit down and talk with any veteran, and we and you could, yeah, like you and I easily talk within ten minutes. Yeah, within ten minutes, just have story after story after story and talk about pretty much anything. Well, you and I hit it off right off the bat. Absolutely. So absolutely and. You know, and it we did the same thing. <laughs> definitely. No, we, we and we did. Yeah. And, yeah. I don't know. Is there anything that you wanted to cap off with, or no? Just that I uh, like. It's like we talked about earlier. I'd do it all over again. Right. It's more enjoyable looking back on it sometimes than it is while you're there. But uh, I really wouldn't have wanted to miss that for anything because I didn't get killed mainly. Yeah. yeah. I didn't get wounded badly. You know, I got wounded, but not badly. Well. I can't thank you enough. This has been well. You're great. certainly welcome. I'm, I hope this isn't the only time we see each other. Definitely not. Okay. Definitely not. Good deal. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that Sunday, March 29th, is National Vietnam War Veterans Day. And though we shouldn't need a special day to thank these folks for their service, I know they would appreciate it. So take a quick second and thank Bill and those like him for their service. And if they're up for it, you might even get the treat of hearing one of their incredible stories too. Hey you. Yeah, you. Hold up before you head out. If you've ever ordered group gear, no doubt you've had a corner of PFC Schmedlap in the chow line for either money or a shirt size. If your sanity is something you're interested in keeping, Emblem Athletic can set up a store where everyone can order and get their shipment individually. If that's somehow not a problem, no biggie. They send you a badass box in bulk. Problem solved, problem staying solved. Head to emblemathletic.com to get started. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends. And please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, 
you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.